Welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place to explore faith in Jesus. And today, we're going to really dig into this idea of genealogy of Jesus as we continue our series, Ancestry.jc. Hey guys, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church in beautiful Powell River, British Columbia. And um, we are going to do a bit of a, well, let me put it this way. Uh, when, when I was growing up, we, uh, my family and I, we'd always, we'd always camp in the Rocky Mountains and particularly the Kananaskis country of the Rocky Mountains. And my mom, she had a favorite hike and it was called Ptarmigan Cirque. And it was, it, was, it was an interesting hike because you started out in a parking lot and you'd walk through this beautiful like valley meadow and then you'd cross the street and then you'd have to make up some pretty good elevation over a short amount of time. And so it was the type of hike where you end up in the woods with no views. It's hot, it's hard, it's arduous and it's switchbacks. Who's done one of those hikes where it's just back and forth and back and forth over and over and over. And it was one of those kind of hikes where you, you think to yourself, particularly if it's your first time doing it, like this better, this had better have some kind of payoff. There better be an awesome view. There better be something really cool to explore and see at the final destination of this hike to make all of this back and forth worth it. Now, Tarmigan Zerke, you come out in this beautiful kind of natural amphitheater surrounded by peaks and rock slides and mountain meadows and you turn around you'd be able to see down through the valley and a beautiful payoff. It's worth the switchbacks. It's worth being hot and hard and climbing that elevation on those switchbacks. Well, today, our sermon might be a little bit like that. Today, uh, we are going to take a bit of a convoluted journey back and forth, back and forth. But I hope that the payoff, I hope that the destination becomes worth it. Because what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus as recorded. Or yeah, genealogy of Jesus, but in particular, uh, Mary. Jesus' mother's side of the story in terms of genealogy, in terms of family history. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at 23 to 38, verses 23 to 38. If you don't have a Bible, visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible, and there's just an easy links there to get a digital Bible in your hands, or if you're in the Powell River region, we would love to give you a Bible, our gift to you. You can fill out the form there. Um, so let's, let's jump in. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, wait, 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 Lucas, I thought you said that we were going to be looking at the genealogy of Mary, not the genealogy of Joseph. And this clearly says, it clearly says, Joseph, the son of Heli. Well, here, here's what you need to understand about genealogies of that day. They would have 
spoken of the husband, not of the wife, even within the wife's own genealogy. Now, we, we, we can understand this because if we jump over to Matthew's recording of Joseph's genealogy, we see that there's a completely different father named here. Uh, in, in Matthew 1.16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So we see Joseph's father is Jacob, but Mary's father, Joseph's father-in-law, is Halai. And so here we go. We're going to just continue as we kind of walk this out. Mary's side. Being the son, as is supposed of Joseph, the son of Halai, the, the son of Methat, the, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of... Met you thought I was going to just keep going the whole time. I, friends, true confession, I very often skip over genealogies because they're just so hard to read and they're so cumbersome. I don't have the patience for it. So I'm not going to read the entire thing. It's there for you to read uh, in Luke 3. But there are three names that I want you to underline in this genealogy. The first name that I want you to underline is at the very end of the list, and it's the name Adam. Do you see it? The very end? Adam. And it says Adam, the son of God. So God created Adam. And so we go all the way back to the very beginning. In fact, between Jesus and Adam, we see here 77 generations named by Luke. I want you to think about this. 77 generations. Luke takes great pains to present this to his readers. Um, the G Jewish people themselves, they took very good care of their genealogies, of their ancestry, their heritage, where they came from. And so here we see Luke puts in the work, and, and, and we can feel, because of the Jewish culture around genealogies, we can feel pretty certain that this is authentic and accurate in terms of a list of generations spanning from Mary all the way back to Adam, 77 generations. Now, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds on this, but I want you to just think this through now. Let's do, let's do a little bit of math as it pertains to the history of humanity. I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about the history of creation. I'm talking about the history of humanity here. If we all come from Adam and Eve, we are closer to this thing than we think right? We are closer to one another than we maybe have originally thought. Depending on how you do the math of generations, today, conservative, if we're going to do a conservative estimate, roughly 145 generations removed from Adam, the first, the first human being. So biblical worldview, we're conservatively 145 or so generations away from Adam. I want you to think about this. All of humanity, everyone that you know, every generation that's been, 145 conservative. Now, some, depending on how you do the math, um, theorize it's ranging from 88 generations to 104 generations removed. So that's a little more aggressive. That tightens the gap a little bit. But I just, just begin to think about that. 
That, that perspective kind of brings us a little closer together, doesn't it? When you think about humanity, when you think about how we share in the brokenness of Adam and Eve, right, as they introduce sin into the world and into their uh, offspring, who we, we are all a part of. And notice how Luke finishes this genealogy. The son of Adam, the son of God. Luke, Luke takes Mary's lineage and brings it all the way back to the creator of all things. And so Luke has this sort of theological impetus. He, he wants to make a point with this, this genealogy that he cites. And there's this motif that we see all through scripture. It's the first Adam and the second Adam. We see this motif kind of presented all through the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, the first Adam and the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, the Messiah. Uh, he is seeking to make a theological point here. And Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49. He says this, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's also us in terms of those who have submitted their lives to Jesus as Savior. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. These are moments where you kind of geek out a little bit, right? Uh, for those of you that are maybe a little bit nerdy, uh, you like information, you like to dig deep into the concepts and ideas and things. Like this is a great geek out moment. As we kind of look at this theology of Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam, um, and all that's going on here. And Jesus comes as one who is, is of the natural because Mary is his biological mother. But he's also of the supernatural because the Holy Spirit is the one that conceived him. And so this reminds us that the Old Testament and New Testament, they're all about the story of God and his love for the world. This redemption story. So let's get back to Mary's history here. The second name that you should underline, and I'm telling you, we're switchback. We're going back and forth. This is going to be, if you like a linear sermon with one point, this is not the one for you. But we're going to take a bit of a journey here. There's going to be multiple things highlighted. The second name you should underline or highlight is Abraham. Abraham. This is the moment in human history where we see a divergence in humanity, right? We see this divergence moment. We see God identifies this one man, Abram, at the beginning and gives him a covenant promise. And we, so we see this divergence. We see a new people being identified as a result of this covenant with Abraham. And of course, Abraham's offspring, the Jewish People. So here we're talking about Israel as a nation. We're talking about the Jewish people. There's a divergence. And over and over we see throughout history. And this people, they were given um, laws 
to follow statutes from God, ways to live in the world that actually cause them to live in a peculiar way, in a different way within the setting of that time and that place in history. Um, the purpose of this divergence was really to set apart a people that would reveal to all of humanity Yahweh as the one true God. This is the purpose of Israel. And we see over and over this history of them walking in the ways of God, them falling away from the ways of God, God chastising, punishing, but also loving and bringing them back into right relationship and in a place of blessing. And you see this over and over all through. And you might ask, why, why is this the case? It's because they serve this function of revealing God as Yahweh. God is the one true God to the world. Really, in a lot of ways, they were meant to be a type and shadow of Jesus. They're a type and shadow of Jesus, the Messiah. This one who would come and reveal a different way. This one who would come with the sole mission of revealing the love, the might, the forgiveness of Yahweh, of God the Father. This is Jesus' ministry always pointed to the Father who lived, uh, you know, he lived so differently even among his own people. But the third name, the third name that we need to highlight is that of David. David, King David. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Of course, this is talking about the Messiah, the king to come. And we see that represented and, and play out in Jesus the Christ. Matthew opens his gospel with this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Um, let, let me ask you, where, where was Jesus born? You remember where Jesus is born? Um, Luke 2.11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of, who? In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We see this kind of play out. This Jesus is being tied to the line of David. And this is important for, for a number of reasons. First, the Messiah comes as king. There is a kingship to who the Messiah was to be, the role he was to play. In fact, this caused Herod, uh, Herod the Great, when he heard that a king had come and been born, he went out and murdered any, any boy under the age of two in that region. He was seeking to squash and to... Um, eliminate any threat to his throne. David's line was the line of kings. Uh, it survived actually in, the, in, in Judah. If you remember, we went back to Solomon. Uh, Solomon messed up by the end of his life, wasn't faithful to God. God removed the kingdom from his offspring, except for the tribe of what? Of Judah. And this is important because the Messiah, the Christ that was to come, had also needed to come from the line of Judah, had to come out of the line and tribe of Judah. And this is another messianic requirement. Um, can you begin to really understand and appreciate uh, just the sovereignty and the great lengths that God went to to really showcase and point and reveal who the Messiah was going to be? 
And then, of course, when Jesus came, we see that Jesus, he fulfills every aspect of what the Messiah was to be. And this genealogy, Luke takes great care to present us the genealogy of Mary to show us that there's a history that leads back to David, Abraham, Judah, in terms of a tribe, kingship. All of these pieces begin to culminate in Jesus the Christ. So let's go back to the genealogy of Jesus. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that really loves this kind of stuff, but I, I, I'm just geeking out on this. This is a fun thing to study for. But let's get back to the genealogy of Jesus because through Mary, I, I want to highlight a few more um, names that kind of carry implications for us. In verse 33, you're going to see the name Judah. Judah. And if you're taking notes or, or, or if you'd like to kind of write in the margin of your Bible, if you're down with that, can you just underline Judah? And then in the margin or in your notes or whatever in your Bible app, you can select that verse and put in notes. I want you to put in Judah's wife's name. Who is Judah's wife? Who is the one that perpetuated the, the offspring of Judah in Mary's genealogy? Do you know the name? It's Tamar. Tamar. Do, do you know the story of Judah and Tamar? It is a, it is a messed up, messy, weird, um, just absolute debacle of a story. Now, it's not a story that you probably heard in Sunday school as a kid because it's too, there's too much to explain to kids when you get into this story. So I wanted to just take a moment. I don't want to just assume that you know it. I want to take a moment to kind of just be talking it out with you. Uh, Genesis 38 is where we see Judah and Tamar and this story play out. And through a set of circumstances, uh, Tamar married his oldest, and he ended up uh, just being evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. God killed him. He lost his life. And so within that culture, uh, kinsmen redeemers were, were a thing. This is a social uh, law that protected women. And so the idea was at that time, women couldn't own property. They had to have a male that owned the property in, in their stead. And so without a husband, she's not widowed. So she needs the next in line in terms of sons of Judah to come and they would get together and marry, and he would produce offspring through her, but in the name of the first husband, okay? And this guy didn't want to do it, and so he'd go through the act, but he didn't want to do it, and so God kills him because he's, not, he's being wicked and not following through with the law. Then uh, Judah has another son, but he's young. He's too young. And so Judah says, you, Tamar, just go back to your father's house as a widow. Wait, when my son is old enough, then you will be given in marriage to him. Doesn't happen. Judah doesn't do it. Judah doesn't follow through. And, and Tamar lives as a widow in her father's house because, again, she couldn't own property. She couldn't own what her husband had owned. And so now she's with her father. Well, fast forward a little bit. Judah's wife passes away. He grieves and then he takes a little trip and he goes up to shear the sheep with a buddy of his. Tamar learns that he's leaving and he's going up to shear the sheep. So what she does is she takes matters into her own hands. She dresses like a cult prostitute, covers her face in a veil and sits at the road where Judah's going to pass by. Judah passes by, sees her, wants to sleep with her. 
doesn't have payment. He's going to pay her a young goat, doesn't have payment. So she says, give me your signet ring and your, and your staff as collateral. And then, um, you can bring me the goat and I'll give it back to you. So they do their thing. Judah leaves. She leaves, puts back on her widow clothes and goes home. Well, Judah's looking for this woman to pay her and, not, and can't find her and just gives up. Three months later, a servant comes to Judah and says, Hey, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but Tamar is pregnant. And Judah's beside himself. He's angry because she's been improper. She's been immoral. She's stepped out. Um, and so Judah says, Bring her to me. And this is where we kind of jump into this moment. In Genesis 38, verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Okay. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And of course, she presented the signet and, and the rod. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. What a crazy story found in the history and the genealogy of who's to be Jesus the king, the Messiah, the savior, the perfect lamb of God. Like what a scandalous moment. Why would you include this in the history of Jesus, the Messiah? And I think there's kind of a couple takeaways that we could take from this moment. The first is the Bible is as honest a book that you're going to find as it pertains to human nature. This, the Bible is so honest about its history, about the brokenness of humanity, about the messed up, scandalous, um, absolute <laughs> brokenness of us as human beings. And if the Bible is this kind of conspiratorial fiction to convince us that Jesus is God, then, then why does it include all of the broken human moments found in his, in his heritage? The second is this. The redemption of the world comes despite the scandal of this link in the chain. Jesus still shows up on the scene, and this is a part of his earthly heritage. Um, it kind of speaks to this idea that God truly is Redeemer, that Jesus truly is Redeemer. The, the, the point of this whole story of God in human history is that he can take even the most broken parts of the human condition and the human story. And through that, Mary, this young woman, can conceive with all of her heritage and all of her baggage and all of the story, all the way back to Adam, the introduction of sin in the world, and then the implications of that sin leading up to this moment as she says yes to the angel who brings her these tidings that she's going to carry the Messiah. And then the Holy Spirit intersects the story of humanity. And in that moment, there's a conception of this one named Jesus. This is powerful. Another name that I want you to highlight is that of Salah. It's going to be found in verse 32. Um, you're going to see him as the father of Boaz. 
Salah. Uh, his wife's name is, and we, we actually looked at her a couple weeks ago, is what? It's Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? You remember Rahab, the, the Canaanite who lived in Jericho on the wall? The one who hid the spies from Israel as they came to spy out the land? Who was a prostitute? She was a harlot. This is, this is, this is someone who's pagan, who's outside of Israel as, as a belief system, as a worshiper of Yahweh, all of the things. But in this moment, she chooses to side with Israel. She sees the power and the might of their God and makes a decision in that moment to be a part of Israel attacking Jericho and by extension Canaan. And, and in fact, we see that Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, mentions, mentions Rahab as this woman of faith. The next person I want you to kind of look at, the third name is, is the highlight Boaz. Boaz, which is right next door. And who did he marry? Well, he married Ruth, this, this Moabite woman, this woman who was not of Israel. Both, both Ruth and Rahab were grafted in through marriage to the people of Israel. This is so interesting. And they weren't grafted in as second kind of rate citizens. They were grafted in as part of not just Israel, but now a part of the lineage of Mary leading to the birth of the Messiah in this world. They submitted themselves to God, and in his sovereignty, he made them part of the bloodline that would lead to Jesus. We, we who are Gentiles, we who are non-Jewish, who are Gentiles, who have submitted ourselves to God through Jesus, we too have been grafted in, we've been adopted, we have been made part of the family of God, not as second-class citizens, but as equals in the promise. You know, earlier this week uh, at youth, we were listening to uh, a teaching by Francis Chan on the book of James, and he mentioned James 5, 17 to 18. And I just want to read that. I want to just take a moment for us to consider this, as this kind of all culminates to this moment for us. What does this all have to do with us? How does this affect our lives? Our position, our understanding of who we are and who God is. Well, James 5, 17 to 18 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he goes on to talk about how he prayed fervently and there was no rain. And then he prayed fervently and there was rain. And, and all the powerful kind of moments and acts of Elijah's life and ministry. But Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What is James saying here? He's saying Elijah was a man just like you. Uh, Elijah was a human being, a person just like you. There's, there's no difference and yet this is what he was used to do. This is what he contributed to the great big story of God in this world. And, and when you begin to look around at the heroes of faith, but you also, when you look around at the brokenness of some of the heroes of faith throughout the history of scripture, I want you to consider that you are a person. You are a human being with a nature just like them. 
Ruth and Rahab, they represent many of us. But they have been grafted into the promise, into the power of the Spirit, into the mission and the purposes God has for humanity. A life submitted to God has potential that is only limited by the sovereignty of God and His plan. I want to say that again. A life submitted to God A life submitted, a broken life, a messed up life, a life that is imperfect, a life that needs a savior, a life that uh, whose hope culminates in this revelation of a Messiah, a savior, a Lord in Jesus has potential. Just like all the heroes of faith, just like everyone we read throughout the history of Jesus genealogy has the potential that is only limited by the sovereignty and the plan of God. This is exciting stuff. Mary, when presented with the plan of salvation for the world, she stands in the presence of that angel and she submits her life to the mission that she's been given. And she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary was just a person with a nature like ours. We too, we too can submit our lives and our moments and our mission and our purpose to the purposes of God and the potential of that, the potential of what God can use our lives for in this world is only limited by his sovereignty and by his plan for our lives. So Lord, as we take a moment to look at the genealogy of Mary, and by extension, the genealogy of Jesus, we thank you that you did not hide or tuck away some of these characters that walked out in brokenness. You did not shy away from Adam who introduced uh, with, his, with his wife Eve, sin to this world. You did not shy away from Rahab and Judah as this story and this, this link in the chain that led to the Messiah. Lord, you revealed the brokenness of humanity through the story of the Messiah. But you also revealed that the power of the story of the Messiah is that all of that sin and all of that brokenness could be overcome and forgiven. The power of that story is that you redeemed a a prostitute in a pagan nation like, like Rahab, who then walked in faith and submission to you. Lord, you grafted her and adopted her into the people of Israel. And Lord, she is mentioned as part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Lord, we thank you that you saw fit to partner with normal human beings, with natures just like ours, with brokenness, with doubt, just like ours. But Lord, you empowered them as they submitted their lives. You empowered them to play a part and a role in this big story of salvation for the world through Jesus. And so Lord, as we submit our lives to you, may we be convinced that the only the only ceiling to that potential as we walk out this life of faith 
is your sovereignty and your plan for our lives in relation to perpetuating and holding up and highlighting the story of the Messiah. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we apologize. Uh, last week, we, uh, we missed uh, the uh, recording of a time of communion together. And so uh, this week, I'm just going to turn it over to Pastor Marcus as he leads us in a moment of communion. And um, yeah, God bless everyone. Well, friends, let's join together in a moment of communion. And oftentimes when we do communion, of course, we go to the communion passage in 1 Corinthians 11. But, you know, the very one of the very first communion tables, so to speak, was actually seen in the presence of enemy territory. Um, in Psalm 23, we see uh, in David's psalm, the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. And, you know, as David talks about walking through the shadow of the valley of death, that uh, we fear, fear no evil. And then right after that, he talks about uh, God preparing a place at the table in the presence of his enemies and his cup overflowing. That there's this picture of the enemies all around him, and yet there's safety at this table. That there's a sense of peace at this table. That there's a sense of restoration at this table. And that's the table that we join together when we do communion is that we remember uh, Jesus' death as he uh, took the bonds of death over our life and traded it for his life. And that's kind of what we do when we celebrate the communion table together, is recognize that there are challenges around us, that there are things that can uh, vie for our gaze and our attention, and yet the communion table gives us a, a moment to pause in the presence of all of that. To, to, rest, to find restoration in him, to find a sense of peace amongst all of those challenges. And that's what I want to do as we join around the communion table together, because the incredible part about communion is not just looking back, it's not just looking at our present, but it's also looking at our future. When Jesus comes again, when we uh, find ourselves at his table once more, when the, the presence of the enemy is fully defeated, when he comes again. And so let's read together uh, in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the, Lord, and drink the, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take that cup together. Well, God, we thank you for this communion table. We thank you for what it represents, the, the remembrance of your broken body and your shed blood uh, that was for us, that was for our life, that was to bridge the gap that we had created in our sin. God, we look uh, towards, we could look at our challenges, we could look at all the things going on, we could look at even just the busyness of this season. But God, when we find ourselves at your communion table, there's a sense of peace, there's a sense of rest. And God, we thank you that when we do this, we proclaim your death until you come again, where we get to sit at that table once more, fully reunited with you when the, the enemy had been, has been fully defeated. And so God, we thank you for this table. We thank you for what it represents and reminds us of. And God, we thank you that it is a table filled with hope. 
Hope that you are coming again. Hope that you will uh, finally bring full resolution to the problem of sin and death in our world and that that peace that you would give us will be fulfilled uh, in its entirety. And so, God, we thank you uh, that you are with us even in the in-between of that happening. God, we thank you for your table that you gave to us as a moment of remembering what you have done so that we can look forward with hope no matter the circumstances, no matter the enemy that is around us. God, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining around the table with us in communion.